Obey the Lubba here is starting to get used to emotional tumult. Our days and lives have become these emotional roller coasters where every day you have like five, six news that come through your way that just basically take the breath out of you and not in a good way. Obey the Law is from Afghanistan. And after the Taliban took over his country in August and the U.S. withdrew, it's been nonstop. Last week was no exception. So I'd woken up seeing this news. President Biden is freeing $7 billion in assets from Afghanistan's central bank. Biden used emergency powers to split the $7 billion held in the U.S. Federal Reserve Bank in New York. His administration wants to put half the money, $3.5 billion, into a trust fund to aid Afghanistan, and it wants to make the other half available in compensation to the victims of 9-11. I mean, it still shocks me, and it's funny that it still does. Obeidullah is not happy with the Biden administration's decision. We'll hear why and where Obeidullah and many other Afghans would like to see that money go. I'm Malika Bilal and this is The Take. Afghanistan's going through so many financial problems these days. We don't have cash in the economy. Our currency used to be printed in Poland, and since the sanctions, Poland has refused to bring that money in. In August of last year, when the Taliban took over, the United States brought back sanctions on Afghanistan, economically voicing their disapproval with the new government. The sanctions cut Afghanistan off from the global economy. Almost $10 billion of Afghan financial reserves were also frozen by the U.S. and a handful of other countries. Enter this current banking crisis. Accessing cash is a daily challenge, and it's hard for Afghans like Obeidullah, an academic based in Kabul, to make a living. I was paid right after August. I haven't been able to access that money still. And every day... The value of those Afghanis, that's what the local currency is called, fluctuates because the situation is so unpredictable. That money has already lost one quarter of its value. But Obeidullah still has money in the bank, at least in theory. So sometimes he'll stop by to try to withdraw some. He says he often gets the same line. They will call me next week. And when I go there next week, I stand in line at 8 a.m. You get your turn, you walk in, and though on paper they say they will give you $200 a week, they will give you just $100 equivalent in Afghanis. Hmm. Banks have stopped even issuing bank statements to people. This is horrendous uh, every way you look at it. Obeidullah is a lecturer at the American University in Afghanistan but he spent the past month in the United States. I'm also a visiting scholar at the New School in New York. I'm I'm currently running my own welfare initiative, Save Afghans from Hunger. We provide 200 families in Afghanistan freshly baked bread every day. And we'll get back to that bread in a minute. But while he's here in the U.S., he's been trying to get policies in place that he thinks will be better for Afghans, no matter who's running the government. I am trying to reach out and meet policymakers. And the goal is to push for more positive policies towards Afghanistan, ones that have better long-term outcomes. 
And with that in mind, he was meeting last week about what will happen to that $7 billion of Afghanistan's money frozen in the United States, even before the White House announcement. We already had an idea that the Biden administration was thinking of unfreezing half of the money to be sent in the form of aid. We were already objecting to that because that's not what federal reserves are for. But no one saw this decision of the 9-11 victims coming. So I want to dive right into that. Before the Afghan government fell to the Taliban, $7 billion of Afghanistan's money, money that was previously held by the Bank of Afghanistan, was deposited in a bank in New York. That money is now frozen. The money was frozen in the U.S. when Afghanistan's government fell to the Taliban last August. Now you have President Biden clearing the way for victims of the September 11th attacks in the U.S. to claim half of that money. They've already won lawsuits that were filed years ago here in New York against the Taliban and al-Qaeda for its role in those attacks. And they are suing to get access to that money as a result of those judgments. Courts will ultimately make the final decision on that. So let's start with that first part. You recently started a Twitter hashtag, Afghans didn't commit 9-11. It's a campaign that seems to have gone viral. Can you explain why you and others came out with that? So when the news came out, we tried to make a plan as to how to oppose this. And one fundamental part of it was that the general population wasn't clear about who really was responsible for 9-11. And let's suppose even if the Taliban were accomplices or somehow linked to the attacks, they don't represent Afghanistan. This money is the property of the Afghan people, not the Taliban's, not the United States, which is why we had to make a hashtag out of it to remind people that we were being punished for a crime we did not commit. We had already been punished for a crime that we did not commit for two decades. 20 years on after the U.S.-led invasion, hundreds of thousands, according to Afghan estimates, civilians killed. And yet, in our worst of situations, we are asked to pay compensations for that crime. Describe to me what some of the tweets say and what people are saying, because I know there have been protests in Afghanistan against this decision. I mean, uh, some people are finding um, humor in all of this. There are actual Taliban members who are saying, you know what, if Biden is feeling so strapped for cash, he could have asked us nicely and we would have helped him. But on a more serious note, people are mobilizing and it's brought Afghans to agree upon the inhuman nature of this decision. And there will be protests internationally as well in different cities. We're already discussing the legal battle that we will pursue. The analogy is even if we're being swallowed by the monster, we're going to make it very difficult and we're going to scratch at the inside of their throat Mm. to not make it a pleasant affair. It's worth noting that a lead attorney advocating for the 9-11 victims was also working for the Biden White House on Afghanistan in January, one month earlier. It was first reported by The Intercept. There are, of course, family members of September 11th victims that support Biden's executive order. 
But there are others who don't. You know, the losses that we've experienced, the loss of our loved ones on 9-11, brought a pain that will never go away. Elizabeth Miller is the daughter of firefighter Douglas C. Miller. Who gave his life on September 11th, 2001. And she's part of the group September 11th Families for Peaceful Tomorrows. I hate, and you know, hate's a strong word, but I get frustrated because us 9-11 families, you know, we're not exceptional. And money doesn't ease the pain of, of the loss of our loved ones. It doesn't bring them back. But what's going on in Afghanistan is a problem. And the Afghan people need this money for humanitarian relief. And I really think that the money should stay with them. So that's one part of Biden's executive order, compensating the families of September 11th victims with money from Afghanistan's central bank. The other part is turning the remaining $3.5 billion of Afghanistan's Federal Reserve money into money to aid Afghans. We asked Obey the Law what he thought about that. Okay, so you have an aid initiative, Save Afghans from Hunger, so you know about what's needed and about aid and development. How bad is it? Aid is needed, but aid is not the long-term solution. Aid is patchwork. Aid is band-aids for a much larger problem. Look, 97% of Afghanistan's population is going to be in absolute poverty this year. 10 million people can starve. Only 5% of households across the country are getting enough to eat. 8.7 million people are at risk of starvation. People wonder if that means there would be people starving on the road and dying of hunger, but that's not how it works. The cycle of poverty, once you fall into it, is very difficult to get out of, and the starvation is exponential. People can not be employed for a few months in a row, but there comes a time when there is no money to be sought or earned, which means technically it takes one day to not be able to feed your family. And Afghanistan is headed that way. We have children that are wasting, meaning their bodies are eating themselves up. We have mothers who are trying to sell their children. It's basically a living nightmare. Obeidullah launched Save Afghans from Hunger in October. Because people started reaching out to me, wanting to help people on the ground. It started with my family sending funds in. Eventually it grew larger with monthly food packages all over Afghanistan. Now we are doing freshly baked bread. So we give coupons to 200 families and they just go to their relevant bakeries and they get 10 pieces of large bread every day. But despite the condition Afghanistan is in and the work he's done, Obeidullah doesn't see aid as the answer. Unless there's an economy, unless there's a banking sector, unless there's jobs to go to, unless there's some sort of development happening in Afghanistan, aid is only going to feed us for a day. It isn't a future plan. And this money is, is central to the banking sector not collapsing on itself because it was already on the brink and the Biden administration chose to kick the pieces and shatter everything. And in the end, Abedullah says, it's not the U.S.'s money. Oh, I've said this before. Someone once asked, it came from God. <laughs> Basically, the government, whatever money it earns, it starts putting it in the central bank. 
This is used to bolster the economy. This is used to back the currency. And that keeps growing through the years. And the larger your federal reserves are, the more stable your economy is. This is our coal being sold. This is our minerals being sold. This is our economy, our taxes, and all of that that has gone into our central bank. Someone had put up a very profound statement saying the richest country in the world is stealing from the poorest country uh, in the world. Do you resonate with that? Of course, I've I've called it theft in broad daylight because it, it is theft by all means. Without these federal reserves, the banking sector is basically non-existent. This executive order is the final nail in the coffin. The previous Afghanistan regime used to get 70% of their budget through aid. And it was that crazy aid dependency that brought us here. Let's not repeat the same formula. I mean, that's the definition of madness, right? Mm. Doing the same thing over and over again, expecting different results. At the core of it, you're doing your best to turn Afghanistan into another failed state. The same failed state that once became the hub for pan-Islamist terrorism. I don't like to throw this argument out there, but it is a reality that the more the situation in Afghanistan gets bad, the more foreign elements find footing in the country, the more the lives of common citizens around the world are in danger. So would you accept the lesser evil that is the Taliban having taken over now or risk having to deal with something much, much worse? And this whole thing sets a bad precedent, he says. They don't have the legal or legitimate right to handle this money. This is a horrible precedent. I mean, you will let Afghans go through this today. The UN is silent. Major countries are silent. One day, it'll be your country. One day, it'll be your federal reserves. That will be misused like this. Is that a world you want to live in? I, as an aid worker, will refuse to take that money because I feel like this money is a betrayal to my people. And enabling that behavior is going to make me an immoral person. So, Obedullah, you don't support Biden's plan to turn the Afghan bank money into aid. What should that money be used for? What we've been saying for a while now is we want these funds to be released. And obviously, we don't mean release these funds unconditionally into the hands of the Taliban. No. The Central Bank of Afghanistan still has an audit committee that functions independently The individuals are part of it from before the takeover of the Taliban. We already have a body one step removed from the Taliban that can manage this bank. On the other end, these foreign reserves are the perfect leverage that the United States has on the Taliban. Rather than using it for grandstanding politics or wasting that leverage, why doesn't the United States sit across the table with the Taliban? Because the United States has sat across the Taliban and sit with them again and tell them, listen, you need this money, you want this money, here are the conditions you have to meet. Here is how I'll release this money in a phased process. Because look, you can choose to bury your head in the sand as a foreign citizen or a foreign government. But the common Afghan people cannot, right? We have to live through this reality day in and day out. If $7 billion of Afghanistan's money returned to the Bank of Afghanistan, would that change everything? 
the foreign reserves being released would help make the currency a tad bit more stable. The banking sector would have some more mobility to it. But then we need cash coming in as well, which is the Afghan currency coming into the economy. And then long term, we need jobs, we need sources of income, we need investment, we need development. There have been in the past chronic problems getting aid to Afghans who need it. Money disappeared. Somewhat incredibly, Hamid Karzai today confirmed that the CIA has in fact been dropping off bags of cash at his national security office for years. Ashraf Ghani denied rumors that he fled with suitcases full of cash. Is there a way to deal with that problem now? I mean, there's one thing that is better about the new Afghanistan. Corruption in Afghanistan had been institutionalized. So it wasn't just people doing it. The system was designed to be open to corruption. The fact that we constantly ranked amongst one of the most corrupt countries in the world speaks for itself. And the change now means that with the restructuring of institutions and the Taliban coming into power, the whole idea of corruption is seen as morally deplorable. So we're seeing lesser corruption and there's also a lot of opening for monitoring and evaluation that this money is not used and, and abused. With the absence of war, there is better access to data on the ground. And the international community can use that to their advantage to make sure that there is some level of transparency that exists with regards to the money going into the country. And in the meantime, what's happening with organizations like yours and with the Afghan people that you're trying to help? I mean, just imagine that when we started off, we were giving flour and, and oil and rice and all those basic commodities to families because we thought that rather than creating a daily dependency, maybe we could give them something that sustains them for a month. Now, the problem was what happens after that month. And then eventually we came to the realization that people didn't even have enough wood to prepare that food with, which is why we turned to the bread campaign. And though we are almost at 200 families now, we're hoping to move to 250 soon. The ultimate goal is a thousand and, and bigger and bigger. Yeah. And you keep doing the work. Because if I don't do it, who will? If I don't feel for my people, then one of the reasons I never left Afghanistan, despite the security threat, we have this maternal link to our, our land. And you don't abandon your parents. You don't abandon kin. You don't abandon your people. So until I can, I'll keep doing this. And it's worth it because even that one person who reaches out and or I get to find out that their life has significantly improved because of the work that we're doing, uh, that's good enough. And that's The Take. This episode was produced by Amy Walters with Priyanka Telve, Alexandra Locke, Nagin Oliai, Ruby Zaman, Ney Alvarez, and me, Malika Bilal. Our sound designer is Alex Roldan. Our engagement producer is Aya El Milek, and our executive producer is Stacey Samuel. If you like the show, rate us on Apple Podcasts. And for more on this story and news we're following from around the world, follow us on Twitter and Instagram at AJTheTake. You can also catch us on Facebook at The Take Pod. We'll be back.